We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank wants to know how you reward yourself. Because they have cards that make every day more rewarding. Are you a points order? Cashback guru? Low intro APR lover? With US Bank, it's up to you because they have the cards to fit your lifestyle. So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or grocery store, even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. US Bank credit cards are issued by US Bank National Association ND. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome to the Rotowire NBA show on Dash Radio's NBA channel. It is Wednesday, August 26th. Nick Whalen here, as always, with Alex Barutha. You can go to rotowire.com slash dash. That'll get you a free 10 days of access to all the premium content on our site, rotowire.com. A ton of great NBA playoff content has been up there the past few weeks. NFL, obviously, in full swing for us. Baseball, uh, Alex, as we've said, we're basically covering anything that's offering any sort of fantasy or, or gambling game possible. Uh, but you and I will be focusing for the next 55 minutes on the NBA. And as we record late Tuesday night, we just watched the Denver Nuggets stave off elimination. Uh, I, I want to say at home. This was technically a home game for the Denver Nuggets. Would have been a really fun game to watch had it been played in Denver, uh, particularly because of the way that Jamal Murray played down the stretch in this game. 33 points. In the second half, 33 of his 42 for the game, 17 to 26 from the field, four threes, only got to the line four times, uh, supplemented it with eight assists and eight rebounds. This is the second huge game we've seen, Alex, from Jamal Murray in this series. And I was saying to you off air just before we recorded, I I feel like I've already gone back and forth on Jamal Murray, my opinion of him as a player, multiple times through these first five games. Yeah, Murray with 42 points, eight assists, no turnovers. Uh, so obviously like one of the best games of his career, if not the best game um, of his career, although obviously he had one earlier in the series, but yeah, Murray's one of those guys where it feels like for the past couple of years, uh, we've kind of been expecting him to break out in a bigger way that he, than he has. His main problem has been inconsistency where you look at his averages and he's averaging 17, 18 points a game. But if you start going down his box scores, it's like, it seems like he's only scoring 27 or like 12. And you're never consistently getting that 17, 18 points out of him. But it's clear, like when he has games like this, that he has that potential to be um, on on any given night, play at an all NBA level, um, especially on offense, obviously. Um, 
the 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 key for Denver will be, you know, I guess, going forward, him playing consistently night after night, giving them a consistent probably twenty points a game with good assists, um, stuff like that. And um, you know, if he can do that, plus if Michael Porter can can step up um, and be especially <laughs> better on defense, then the Nuggets have something to look forward to in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, I mean, first they need to win the series. I think a lot of people wrote off Denver after game three or after game four, excuse me, falling down three, one, they win game one. Uh, and then, and as you alluded to with Jamal Murray, it's kind of feast or famine with him. And if he's averaging 17 a game, he's not getting you 17 each night. It's, it's one extreme or the other. And it kind of averages out game one, 36 points, game two, 14 points, game three, 12 points, game four, 50 points. And then game five, uh, this remarkable performance with 42. So he's been all over the map in this series, but I mean, at three of these games now, games one, four, and five have basically been duels between Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell late in games. And and in this one, Donovan Mitchell had a fine game, you know, 30 points on 23 shots. Uh, obviously, he's being asked to do a ton for this team, even even with Mike Conley back. And he played well down the stretch as well. There, there's just not a ton of playmaking, especially in the half court for Utah. It's basically all Donovan Mitchell. And it's been interesting to me, Nikola Jokic played really, really well in this game, probably his best overall game in the series with 31 points on 19 shots, hit seven threes, including one from the corner uh, to ice it with about 30 seconds left. But down the stretch, it it was the case in game four. It was the case in game one. Nikola Jokic is the Nuggets best player by far. We know that everybody knows that, but they can't necessarily go to him to create shots and get buckets. You know, if if it's a tie game or you're up one or you're down one with 30 seconds left, they kind of have no choice but to play through Jamal Murray just because of the type of player that Jokic is. Yeah, I guess that's inherently a little bit of a problem of having your best theoretically offensive player be a, primarily a post player is that when you're in the post, you're generating most of your shots or most of your shots are semi-contested and you can get into the lane. I mean, if you are if you have incredible post moves, you can blow by people and get people to go on up fakes and stuff like that, but I think just kind of inherently guards and wings, their ability to cross people up, drive the lane, get a defender on their back and force defensive help. That can be a lot more valuable late in games um, than someone like Jokic, who you'd rather have in the post. And like Mm -hmm. Jokic can definitely facilitate for other people up top near the three point line and he can post up and then pass to people. But that's it. the, The kind of threat doesn't feel the exact same as a guard who is like as hot as Murray. Uh, was right. this game so where do we see the rest of the series going now utah still has the advantage they're up three two heading into game six that'll be on thursday night like i said it really felt like this was the opportunity for utah to slam the door they still can do that uh on thursday but it, this does feel like kind of a bounce back for denver it, it seemed like gary harris had a chance to play coming into this game he was ultimately ruled out before tip-off but maybe with a couple more days of rest that adds another piece that denver desperately needs on the defensive end, they've been by far the worst team on defense in the playoffs. I mean, coming into this game, a defensive rating of 131.1, uh, which obviously implies that Utah's offensive rating has been 131.1, equally ridiculous. In watching these games, I don't necessarily get the feeling that Denver is like loafing it on defense. You know, you watch some of those games with Portland, especially at the end of seeding play and, and certainly last night against the Lakers. It's like, OK, I see why this team is bad on defense. They don't have the personnel. They're tired out like a lot of it with Utah seems like it's almost more shot making on their part. And even even with this being a, a fairly convincing win by Denver, they, they win by 10 points. It's, it's a game that they trailed going into the fourth, but they closed it out well. Utah still shot 50% from the field. They still hit 16 threes. They shot 47% from three. This was a really, really good offensive game from the Utah Jazz. I mean, the pace wasn't all that high. It was only at 95 possessions. Um, and that's the reason that the score was a little bit lower. But in terms of offensive efficiency, it was another really productive game from Utah. So, I mean, if you're Denver, you're obviously happy to get the win. But at the same time, you didn't necessarily succeed other than in the pace category, I guess, in in actually slowing down the Jazz. Right. The Jazz were up for most of this game by like five or ten points. And their biggest lead was at 15 at one point. And like you alluded to, the, the Nuggets didn't really slow them down at all. Like 50% of the field, 47% from three from the Jazz. And really where they ended up losing the game ultimately bigger picture was turnovers where the the jazz had six more turnovers than the nuggets did. And then obviously the nuggets needed Jamal Murray to just save them mm. um, late in the game. So 
on one hand, it's it's nice Denver got this win, but I wasn't especially convinced by it. The way they had to be saved by Jamal Murray, and the way they still could not stop Denver or excuse me Utah, who is on a heater and is like shooting obviously incredible. But and I, and I figure if it would have regressed hard, it would have happened already. Right. I just it's it's hard to believe that that game where they shoot like 38 percent from the field is coming. Mm-hmm. And this didn't convince me that, you know, n- the Nuggets are going to go on this uh, stretch now where they end up taking the series. I think ultimately this is still um, the Jazz's series to lose. I think you're right. I would still pick Utah just because of the advantage. I, I mean, it's kind of to me, it's kind of a toss up the rest of the way. But just because they do have that extra game uh, of leeway, I, I would side with Utah. But yeah, I, like you said, they continue to shoot well. I, I do feel like that that regression is coming at some point, but they clearly have a confidence playing against this Denver defense. I, I think maybe where that regression comes ultimately is in round two against the Clippers, if that's what the matchup right. ends up being. You know, I, I think if you're the Clippers you're you're really happy to not have to deal with Jamal Murray and not have to deal with Jokic, even though this Denver defense has been terrible. It was it was the worst defense even in seeding play. You know, this is nothing new. It's not like Utah, you know, well, they have been shooting the ball well. Denver's defense was in shambles prior to the playoffs. Um, but, you know, Murray and Jokic at least bring a certain level of variance, I think, that the Jazz don't. You know, you, you have to contain Donovan Mitchell, but, you know, it, the Clippers have some size to bet, to deal with Rudy Gobert, I don't think they're scared of Mike Conley. Certainly they have they have guys to battle the rest of these role players who have stepped up from Utah. Um, but I, I'm with you. I, I think it's going to be really interesting to, to see if Denver uses this as kind of a stepping stone game and is able to carry this momentum. Or, you know, we see what happened in games two or three where they, you know, they have a huge win in game one in overtime. Very similar game to this in a lot of ways where Jamal Murray is the guy to close things out. And it really seemed like they were in control. It, it seemed like Utah at the time without Mike Conley was going to be overmatched and you know they were able to turn the tables the next two games so advantage utah for now uh, but it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how this one shakes out we already have three series now uh, that are completely wrapped up and the way that the nba playoff schedule works this year and in most years uh the nba is going to be more than willing to start round two before round one is completely wrapped up like boston toronto game one is happening on thursday uh, and, you know, a series like Utah OKC, which is 2-2 right now, game game five is not going to be until Wednesday, which means that that series can't wrap up until what? If I'm doing the math right, Sunday, I believe, at the at the earliest. Um, you know, it, it's just it, it makes it a little bit difficult, I guess, to to kind of demarcate between round one and round two. So we we'll kind of have to do a little bit of a round one wrap up and a little bit of a round two preview at the same time. But uh, I want to go back to Indiana and Miami. Uh, another series that concluded on back on Monday night. Miami closed that one out 99-87 in game four. I don't really want to talk about this series all that much since it is Wednesday. This did happen two nights ago. Um, but, you know, we don't want to put the cart before the wagon. I, I feel pretty good about the Milwaukee Bucks closing out the Orlando Magic, whether that happens today on Wednesday, whether it happens on Friday or whether it happens on Sunday. I, I do think Milwaukee's going to win that series. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. So I'd rather look ahead to Milwaukee and Miami and kind of get your thoughts on how close this series could ultimately end up being. Because, you know, you and I talked about this, you know, many, many times over the months that we were we were waiting for the season to resume, many times over the last few weeks while the season has resumed. No team has played Milwaukee better from start to finish this season in all their meetings than the Miami Heat. They have the personnel, you know, Bam Adebayo guarding Giannis. That's about one of the, if you had to draft, you know, if you had to draft a list of guys to guard Giannis, Bam Adebayo would be very close to the top of the list. And Jimmy Butler can spend basically all day on Chris Middleton and give him trouble as well. Not that Chris Middleton uh, will need Jimmy Butler to give him trouble if he keeps playing like he has been against Orlando, uh, which has been really bad. It hasn't been good. Um, it has not, has not been good. Um, he just cannot score on uh, Markel Fultz. But uh, yeah, I... I would be surprised if this game was uh, less than six games. I'm expecting a six or seven game series, Milwaukee, and ultimately coming out on top. But the Heat, I mean, the Heat have looked incredible since the bubble. Um, Their role players have been awesome. Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo have been awesome. They made easy work of Indiana, um, who I thought, I thought that series would at least be semi-competitive. And like it, it was, but, uh, you know, it was still, they still, I mean, they still swept. 
Um, so I'm I'm a little worried for the Bucks. I think they'll definitely get pushed. Uh, but yeah, I think I think it'll be I think it'll be competitive ultimately. Right, I, I'm with you too. I, I think going into the playoffs, this this would have been firmly Milwaukee for me. I, I still would have said maybe five or six games as opposed to six or seven. But the the air of of infallibility, the air of dominance with Milwaukee has definitely worn off. And even though they they've won the last three over Orlando, they still I, I feel like they still haven't put together one complete like dominating game from start to finish. And for most of the teams in the league, for like 28 of the 30 teams, that's too much to ask. Like most teams is like a win's a win, especially in a playoff series. Doesn't matter if you're the one seed or the eight seed, whatever. But when the Bucks were historically as dominant as they were, they I, we haven't seen one game. Whether going back to the seeding games either, they they have not put together one complete game where everyone's played well. I mean, how many times during the regular season, Alex, would we tune into Fox Sports Wisconsin on a Tuesday night, and it's midway through the first quarter, and it's like. Bucks 28, uh, Indiana Pacers 11, you know, where they're, they're just blitzing teams from start to finish. Giannis is out of the game midway through the third quarter with 24 minutes played. They just haven't had that game yet. They've had quarters. They've had maybe a couple halves where they've looked like that team. Uh, and I think, I think the thought was they could use this Orlando series to get back to that form. And outside of Giannis and Tedekumpo and, and some of the role players, you know, Pat Connaughton, for example, has looked so much better over these last couple of games than he did at the end of the seeding round and, and even in game one. Dante DiVincenzo has been a little better. Brooke Lopez has been better. But, you know, when your second best player uh, is, is Chris Middleton and he's, you know, he had 18 points, I believe, in the fourth quarter uh, of game four against Orlando, but three points through the first three quarters, uh, very reminiscent of his first few games in that series. He's really yet to get going. I, I guess I, I would I would have liked to see Milwaukee use this round one series and, and look a little bit more dominant, even though it's against an inferior opponent, even though, you know, if you don't have a crowd, maybe it's harder to get up for these games. I, I wanted to see them like have a couple like 30 plus point blowouts and really kind of send a message that we're back. And even though they're probably going to win the series in five, I, I don't really feel like they did that. Right. I, one interesting thing has been, you know, kind of looking at how these teams have been succeeding or or not succeeding on the court has been the difference between the transition offense and the half court offense between these two teams. Cause as of right now, the bucks have the second best points per play in the half court in the playoffs. They've been great in the half court, but they're one of the worst transition teams in the playoffs right now. And that's not what you think when you think the Milwaukee bucks, you think of a team that sometimes they struggle in the half court and they dominate in transition. It's been the other way around. And meanwhile, it's the opposite for the, uh, Heat, who were pretty average in the half court against Indiana, um, they're at they're like the 12th best in the in the playoffs in terms of points per half court play, but they've been the best transition team. So I think some of that's going to balance out, mm-hmm. um, especially like I think Milwaukee will will obviously get better at that, and I think Milwaukee's transition defense will help stop Miami. So I mean I I generally think half court offense is like the stickiest thing in terms of, you know, how it'll translate over time, especially in the playoffs. So that part of me thinks, you know, that that leans in favor of Milwaukee. Um, and I think they'll figure out the transition um, aspect of it. But yeah, I mean, they the the fact that they can't like you like you mentioned, can't get like a 40 point win in this series or can't get a game where Giannis only has to play 20 minutes and Middleton mm-hmm. goes for 35 points. It's it's concerning. It's also worth noting that Milwaukee does have the the third best defense in the playoffs right now, and they're you know minuscule percentage points behind the Lakers and behind Toronto. And I, I think that's another thing you you know you mentioned half court offense being sticky. I, I think defense. I would I would rather be consistent on defense than consistent on offense early in the playoffs, if that makes sense. You know, it's kind of the same reason that people were not panicking about the Lakers. You know, shot making is going to come around defense historically does not just come around you know if, if you're a bad defensive team like think of that that Cavs team a couple of years ago that was like horrific right. on defense I think they still made the finals but um it was always like well they'll, they'll turn it on when they have to uh they never turned it on and I think they lost that finals in five games to to the Warriors and you know if, if you have the defense you can always count on the offense coming around at some point even if it ends up being a game-to-game inconsistency type of thing like at least every uh, one out of every two games, you know, the offense will be there. And, and with Milwaukee, it's going to be a lot more frequent. So the fact that they're defending well against an Orlando team that, to its credit, has shot pretty well. And I, I think we talked about this last week, but I, I think there's a case to be made that 
somehow being without Aaron Gordon has benefited them, just being able to play a little more freely. You know, they have Vucevic basically surrounded by three to four shooters, depending on if Markel Fultz is in the game. And he, he actually hit multiple threes in game four. Um, I, I think not having Aaron Gordon out there has, has maybe opened things up for them a little bit. Uh, and at, at the end of the day, you do have to give some credit to Orlando for the way that they've defended Giannis. He's gotten his numbers, but you know, even though he's, he's still having these like 32, 14 and eight type of games, it doesn't seem like an easy 32. You know, there's a lot of times where you think he has an open layup and he's getting stripped going to the hole or, you know, there are always four guys collapsing on him. Like Orlando said coming into the series, you know, like we don't think we're going to get blown out. We think if we're hitting our shots, we can hang in with this team. That of course was proven right in game one. But like I said, even though they're going to lose in five games, I, I think it's, it's partially Milwaukee, maybe not being quite right, but at the same time, I, I don't think we were prepared for how prepared this Orlando team would be. No, I, yeah, they're, they're doing great. I mean, they're just playing great team basketball. Like mm-hmm. Steve Clifford, um, you know, he was not given like a great <laughs> team to work with necessarily, but um, there's a reason that he's consistently gets hired and it's stuck in places for a long time is he's just a really good coach. And, you know, with, even with a lack of talent, he's putting together a competitive series against, as competitive as anyone could honestly ask for against the Bucks, uh, which is more than like the Pistons did last year, for example. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know really if it means anything for the magic going forward at all. I don't even know if they won another game in the series that it would mean anything or matter for their franchise, mm-hmm. unfortunately, but it is at least like good, good to see. Uh, the, <laughs> a competitive series. I don't know, like not to be a downer, but like you know. No, I I appreciate the realism. I yeah. one I completely forgot about that Milwaukee Detroit series yeah. at first. Like when you said that, I was like, oh yeah, that that was just a year ago. Like that feels like that was five years ago at this point. But right. Yeah, I mean Orlando's in a very unenviable position. That's for sure. Uh, the same position that these Milwaukee Bucks were in not all that long ago, just perennially. Uh, finishing seventh or eighth and getting just absolutely smacked by, I guess back then it was like the Pacers in the heat in round one and picking 16th every year and overpaying guys like Vucevic. But uh, I mean, again, even though they're going to, they're going to lose this series, it's, it's been a good effort for Orlando. The Rotowire NBA podcast is brought to you by PropSwap. The smart sports better knows where to find the best odds before placing any bet. And that is why smart sports betters use PropSwap. It's America's marketplace to buy and sell sports bets. Just last week, a customer bought a Miami Heat to win it all ticket at the odds of 42 to 1. FanDuel right now has Miami Heat at 25 to 1 to win the NBA title. PropSwap customers always find the best odds because you're buying directly from other bettors like yourself. See a ticket you like, but you think the price is just a little bit too high? Submit a bid for a price you think is fair, then you can buy that ticket outright. It's the best way to make sure you're getting the best odds possible. No sportsbook is going to offer some of the odds that you'll find on PropSwap right now. They just simply will not. PropSwap, where America buys and sells sports bets. Before we talk Toronto and Boston, I, I do think we need to touch on uh, what was a pretty revealing interview. And, and frankly, one of, the, one of the more frank interviews, I guess, that we've seen uh, in the bubble you know, there's been since the start of this thing, going all the way back to the scrimmages at the you know in June and July. You know, it's the focus has very much been Black Lives Matter. That was obviously huge for the players and the players' association when they negotiated uh, everything that was going on with with the bubble plan. But it, it's only intensified, and with what's gone on in Kenosha with the shooting of Jacob Blake earlier this week. It, it seems like it's kind of reset a lot of the tensions uh, that were there at the beginning, and and rightfully so. And it was it was really kind of jarring to see guys like Fred Van Vliet and Jalen Brown, uh, even some coaches like Brad Stevens spoke very frankly about the situation. And from a news perspective, the biggest takeaway, I don't know if this is if this is ultimately going to happen. But, you know, Fred Van Vliet flat out said, you know, we have talked about potentially boycotting games in the bubble. And and then you you read on on Monday after game four between the Bucks and, and the Magic George Hill flat out said, like, I didn't want to come here in the first place. I felt like we should be participating in this discourse, you know, in the first person, being on the scene, being at these at these protests, doing what they can on the ground. You had Jalen Brown tweet Tuesday night. I want to go protest. 
Uh, I, I don't know where this goes necessarily, and a lot of it maybe is going to be determined by what happens in Kenosha, Wisconsin, with, with how this investigation turns out. But uh, this is now looking like kind of a, an upswell of, of maybe something that the NBA didn't necessarily think it would have to deal with, where there's been another incident, another high-profile uh, police-related shooting, and now these guys, now that they're in the bubble, there's not. I think they're kind of finding that maybe they're not able to affect it in some of the ways that they that they hoped or or would want to be if they were out of it. Right. I, you know, as I, it, I didn't really anticipate. Kind of like you alluded to, it was weird to think about like what if this happens again during the bubble, mm-hmm. and it was something I had never really strongly considered. Probably just talk of ignorance. Uh, and now that it's happened, you realize like. Sure, like everybody, like the NBA has done, um, you know, has tried to give the players a platform. Black Lives Matter is on the court. Players can put certain phrases on the back of their jerseys. But at the end of the day, when something real like this happens and someone is killed by police, these players do want to not purely be basketball players. And that's what the bubble is. It's like you come here and you are a basketball player and you can't really leave. And there's only so much that you can really do that is in real life. And it's easy to forget these, all these guys are like, these are all real people and essentially, you know, as normal of a life as you can have while being a a basketball player, but they want to be a part of the community. They want to affect change because a lot of them can affect change in in many ways because of their influence as athletes and the money that they have and, and things like that. So it's, it's a really tough call on, for everyone involved, for the league, for players to kind of know what, how to navigate this situation now that we're all already here and that this has happened again. Right. Extremely difficult situation uh, on all sides. And, you know, I, I, I don't know where this goes. Like I said, I, 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 Van Vliet's quotes were the ones that really stuck out to me the most. And I, I think he hit it on the head by saying, you know, you mentioned Black Lives Matter is on the court. It's on the graphics, they have the names on the jerseys. And I think that was really striking at first, you know, it was a huge deal. Like the first game that every team played, it was like, Oh, what does this guy have on his Jersey? What does this guy have on his Jersey? To be honest, I don't really think about it anymore. You know, it's, it's one of those things that is a very nice gesture. It is something that, you know, when you're watching a game, it's in your mind just because you're reading the what's on people's jerseys, but are you really contextualizing it? Are you really thinking about it when you're watching this team play for now, like the 12th or 13th time in the bubble? Probably not. And Van Vliet basically said that, you know, he, he said like, you know, I'm looking for the quote right now. Um, you know, if, if we're going to sit here, this is him talking. If we're going to sit here and talk about making change, then at some point we're going to have to put our nuts on the line. Great, great terminology and actually put something up to lose rather than just money or visibility. And I think that's basically his way of saying like all the stuff that we've done is all well and good, but at the end of the day, what are we really putting on the line? You know, we're still making money. The league's still making money. People are still able to watch us. For them to really affect change, you know, the way to do it would be to not play. And for someone on a team that has maybe played the best out of any team so far in the bubble to say that, I mean, this isn't, you know, uh, Dante Hall on on the Brooklyn Nets saying, I'm not going to play. This is, you know, arguably the second or third best player on a, a title contender thinking about this and then having his thoughts echoed by someone on another kind of title contender in the Bucks and Jalen Brown, the second or third best player in another title contender in the Celtics. It's real. And, uh, you know, you wonder how many other guys feel this way. I'm sure there are several per team. And if a lot of guys band together, this is certainly something that, that the league is going to have to deal with. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Because uh, Van Vliet is right. You know, there's a difference between raising awareness and trying to really enact change. You know, like no one is going to, uh, you know, no one who <laughs> doesn't believe in the Black Lives Matter movement is going to look at an NBA game and go, you know what? Like maybe they do matter because I saw it on the court. Right. Um, and so, yeah, what, what Van Vliet's getting to is protesting is really important. You are risking something. Um, and that those are the kind of things that ultimately can promote change and sometimes hopefully um change people's opinions for the better. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, I, I think the, the biggest thing, though, is what you, what they're what these players are trying to end, what the league is trying to end is exactly what happened in Kenosha. You know, so right. I think they now have this perfect example of like, look, yeah, we did all this. We've been doing this for the last couple of months. 
even before we got to the bubble, we were a lot of us were marching in the streets. We were doing things behind the scenes. We were giving money mm-hmm. and none of it mattered. You know, so I think now that they really have this salient piece of evidence to the contrary, that's where it's going to be really hard for the NBA or for ownership or whoever it might be that that would maybe push back against this to do so. It's, it's going to be really, really difficult when you have such a a glaring example of of no progress, for, for lack of a better term. And, um, you know, as somebody who wants to see these playoffs finish, it's it's a it's kind of a scary thought. But at the same time, I mean, I, I don't who wouldn't support uh, any guys, you know, potentially sitting out games or whatever they feel needs to be done to to actually enact change because you know clearly what, what's what's been done so far hasn't been working uh, anyway getting to the actual basketball portion of this series we're we going to have some in, incredible second round series across the board but i really think toronto and boston has the potential to be the best out of any of the the second round series in either conference especially when you look at some of the injuries that are maybe at play in the west we don't know what's going on with russell westbrook or if houston's even going to get to round two uh, you know, Milwaukee, Miami is going to be really good as well. But Toronto and Boston are, are two teams that have seemingly kind of been in the same zone in the East for a long time. They've both been top three, top four seeds. It seems like every year, you know, the rosters have kind of turned over, but they've always been there. They've never actually met in the history of, of the Toronto Raptors franchise, which only dates back to the mid 90s. They've never played the Boston Celtics in the playoffs. And I think these are two teams that you know, are, are very different stylistically, but in, in terms of their upside, um, you know, in terms of some of the guys, some of the experience that they have, um, you know, these are two teams that I think everyone who loves NBA basketball wants to watch square off. Yeah, these are, there will be a lot of really interesting individual matchups in this series. Um, you know, you have Kemba going up against Lowry. You have Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart up against Fred Van Vliet, Siakam against Tatum. And you kind of got like, you know, Ken Gasol and Serge Ibaka really outplay Daniel Tice and the other front court options of Boston. Um, I mean, I, I'm really excited for this series. I think this will be a close series. I, I think Toronto will win in six, but I, I think it, it will be close. I, my main concern has been that. So the, in the four regular season meetings between these two teams, Siakam only played in two games, Gasol only played in two games and Norman Powell only played in two games. So there isn't a ton necessarily to take away from those regular season games. But I think it was interesting that Jason Tatum struggled a lot uh, against uh, a, a Toronto team that wasn't at full strength. He's about 16 points a game in those four games, shot under 40% from the field. His three-point percentage wasn't great either. And if they can hone in on him and keep him, you know, I don't expect him to score 16 points a game. I expect him to score more than that. But if they can make the, his life difficult again like they have before, that plus Gordon Hayward not being available for Boston, that is going to put them possibly into very desperate situations offensively. And frankly, they weren't that great offensively against Philly to begin with, even though they swept right. Philly. They were settling for a ton of mid-range jumpers. Um, they weren't especially efficient. And a lot of that was Marcus Smart and Daniel Tice just completely bricking threes. I think they were five for 30 or something ridiculous like that. But if they were uh, that struggling, doesn't sound, That doesn't sound like my Marcus Smart. <laughs> no. But if they were already struggling offensively um, against Philly, then when they go up against Toronto, that that does worry me. So that's one of the things I wanted to ask you. And you wrote a preview of this series for the site, uh, rotowire.com slash dash, of course, is where you can get access. Uh, you wrote that that went up earlier today, or, or I guess I should say on Tuesday night. Um, you know, just kind of giving a recap of, of each team in round one and then previewing the matchup. Um I mean, how, how much of Boston's success in round one do you credit to the Celtics playing well versus Philadelphia kind of collapsing, being without Ben Simmons? Um, I was of the belief that especially once Boston lost Gordon Hayward, Philly was really going to have the opportunity to work its way back into the series. I thought the talent was a, a lot more even at that point. Um, but in, in retrospect now, it you, you do start to wonder, like, had Philly just quit on Brett Brown before this whole thing even started? So... You know, part of me thinks like as as good as Boston looked in that four game series, even without Simmons, I don't think anyone thought that was going to be as easy of a sweep as it was for Boston. You know, like how much do you discount it? Because Philly was just clearly so disjointed from the inside out. Philly was disjointed, but they still won the rebounding battle and they still took more free throws than Boston. Boston only won the the field goal efficiency and the turnover battle. So 
it is concerning to me that again, Boston only shot 52% effective field goal percentage. And that was actually worse than expected based on their shot selection, which again was a ton of mid rangers. And I know Boston is a jump shooting team and I predicted them to win the series because I didn't think Joel Embiid would affect them. Like he would affect a lot of other teams that are more aggressive in getting to the rim. Um, but I don't think a ton of their, I don't think this 4-0, it, it didn't feel like an especially convincing 4-0 sweep, I guess, uh, to me. I know Philly kind of laid down and it felt like that at points, but it, there, there wasn't, I don't, I don't know. It, it didn't, it doesn't give me a tongue of confidence the way they played necessarily. So I looked at some of the betting angles for, for this series and just kind of the futures, the rest of the way going forward for the site today. And if you look at the Eastern Conference, you know, this Toronto-Boston series that we're talking about, plus Milwaukee and Miami, the Bucks are still the favorites to come out of the East. They're minus 112 to win. Uh, Toronto's plus 250. Boston's plus 350. Miami's all the way down uh, at plus 800. The implication, at, at least in my reading, uh, when you consider that coming into the bubble, uh, when I when I basically wrote the same article in late June, Toronto was 7-1. to one. To, in, to win the East. So, I mean, that's been more than cut in half. Uh, Boston, same story. They, they were longer odds as well. Uh, I think they were plus 800 before the bubble. Um, it, odds makers view both of those teams as, as having a much better chance now to upset Milwaukee uh, than they did uh, a couple of months ago. And I, I, kind of the same question I asked you with, with Boston versus Philly, like how much of that is Milwaukee looking more vulnerable versus both Toronto and Boston looking like two of the more dominant teams in the league uh, through seeding play and, and certainly through the first round with both of them sweeping. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I mean, we should have expected Toronto to just cut through Brooklyn. Like that didn't surprise anybody. Yeah, yeah. And I think most sports books had Celtics in five as the most common outcome or the most expected outcome. So again, that was also kind of expected that the Celtics were going to beat Philly significantly. So I think a lot of this, I, I guess I'm, I'm talking myself more into the Bucks not looking convincingly good against the magic and really blowing them out and having like a 20 uh, point differential against Orlando. Um, so I think, I think the Bucks play is probably 75, 25 is, has brought those odds to where they are. Yeah, I think so. And, and it goes back to what I said at the beginning. I, I think if Milwaukee had just picked up where it left off and looked like the Bucks that we saw in February and March, then these odds probably don't change all that much. Um, and you have to consider, too, that, you know, part of the reason that, um, you know, these odds could maybe even be a little bit closer in terms of Toronto and, and Boston being closer to Milwaukee to win the East is that it's being factored in that those teams have to go through each other. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think there's a case to be made that that the odds makers see all three of these teams as relatively even, you know, I think at the end of the day, Milwaukee is, is still the favorite. They've earned that right. Not only uh, because of the regular season that they had, but even dating back to last season, you know, you're basically bringing back that same team that was almost equally dominant uh, in 2018, 19. So Milwaukee's earned that status and it's, it's kind of up to the bucks, I guess, to relinquish it. Uh, but it's, it's hard to have as much confidence in Milwaukee. I, I think as a lot of people did in February and March, I briefly mentioned Miami. We barely talked about them. They're at plus 800, uh, quite a bit behind the pack. And, of course, the implication there is they have a, a much tougher opponent in round two in the Bucks than, than Toronto-Boston, which is basically a toss-up. But I don't know. I mean, like, if, if Miami's able to pull the upset over Milwaukee, I, I, I don't really have a problem picking Miami over Boston or, or Miami over Toronto. I mean, Kyle Lowry's probably going to go into this second-round series being very much questionable for game one. Um, you know, he didn't practice. On Tuesday, I would be shocked if he practiced on Wednesday, dealing with a, a fairly severely sprained ankle. Um, if 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 Milwaukee plays the same series against Miami that it does or that it has so far against Orlando, I mean the Bucks are probably down three one if if they play that game against against Miami, right. let alone Toronto or Boston. Yeah, and Miami, Miami hasn't. You look at Miami's numbers, and they haven't done a lot that is like unsustainable. You know right. they're. Their shooting against Indiana was, it was really good. It was 46, 39, 78, but that's not, you know, I mean, that's not like Utah jazz level or anything like that. And they're, you know, they had the advantage in rebounding and, and their free throw attempts were crazy. Um, 29 made free throws per field goal attempt, 
but that's Jimmy Butler shoots like 10 a game. So he's going to drive a lot of that anyway. Um, but yeah, looking at their numbers, I mean, they're, they're, they've just been solid this whole time. And, um, you know, I think if they get through Milwaukee, which isn't it's certainly not impossible. I mean, both of us, I think, you know, I mean, I, I think it'll go six or seven. Then you have to, I mean, if they can get through Milwaukee, then obviously they can get through Toronto or, or, or Boston. Right. Um, and then at that point, you know, it's just facing whoever comes out of the West. But if you're only betting on who wins the East, then, you know, I think, what what'd you say it was eight to one? I think that makes sense. Is, I think that's value. Eight to one to win the East. Yep. I think that's, I think that's a value. Right. And one thing you have to consider, too, is I, I almost like when you're looking at the East specifically, uh, because the West is a little more top heavy with the Lakers and the Clippers kind of splitting the favoritism at the top. I, I, I like betting those teams for for the conference only, because then you don't even have to worry about wh- who comes out of the West, whether it's the Lakers right. or presumably the Clippers. Whereas like the odd, it, it's funny to look at these odds because Milwaukee is, you know, minus 112 to win the East plus 275 to win the title. Toronto is minus or plus 250 to win the East and then plus 700 to win the title, which is you know a, a pretty sizable gap. So like the implication there is like, yeah, Toronto could win the East, but we don't think they're going to win the East and then beat one of the LA teams. Whereas there's kind of this paradox with Milwaukee where it's like, we don't think they're that much better than Toronto, but if they get through the East, we also think they can go beat the LA teams, you know? Yeah. I think that's like a, I uh, yeah, I think that is, I, I think that's like kind of a nod to the top end talent of Milwaukee yeah. having Giannis right mm-hmm. uh, in the, in the NBA finals. But uh, again, I mean, Toronto, if they, if they can get to the finals, you know, there's no reason they can't beat one of the LA teams. I don't think. And seven to one, you know, I, th- I think that's, I think that's fair odds. I think that makes sense. Um, you know, they've looked awesome and they have, uh, I mean, all season they're, they're a deep team. They're, they have the coach of the year and Nick nurse. Um, and yeah, it's, I mean, I'm glad the playoffs have been, you know, I, I know we talked about like the sweeps aren't that interesting inherently, but now, especially in the East, we're getting into some really, really interesting series that will test all four of these teams. Um, and I, the West, all, all the West series um, have been really good. Yeah, yeah, they have. Um, Lakers Blazers looks over. Right now, we don't really have to talk about that too much. Although I will say, I am I'm relieved that LeBron James is very much back over these last two games. Um, not even the stat lines, but just he just physically uh, looks like a completely different guy than we saw during the scrimmage games and and in game one and game two of this series. Anthony Davis looks great, and and we should mention. I mean, I'm I'm sure you've heard it by now, but Damian Lillard will not play in game five, so that should be curtains at least for that series. Um, and then you have to start to look ahead at. Is it going to be Houston? Is it going to be OKC? And I think if we, if you had asked this question last week, we would have unequivocally said it's going to be the Houston Rockets. And I, I think this time last week, Alex, it was Houston and Toronto were kind of the two teams that looked like they were peaking at the right time and were playing the best out of everyone. And now Houston loses two straight to OKC. Uh, the Lakers, assuming they do close it out on Wednesday, now maybe have like a four or five day gap between that and the start of, of the next series. What is going on? with Houston. Um, Russell Westbrook still has not played in this series. There's a chance. It sounds like he comes back for game five, but uh, really tough to tell how close he actually is to, to being 100%. Um, but this has turned into very improbably, you know, arguably the best first round series, or at least the most competitive, uh, certainly in the Western conference. Yeah. I mean, it's in terms of how, you know, how each team is getting an advantage in this series. It, it makes sense so far. Houston, losing the rebounding battle they concede that by playing small ball they lose the free, they're losing the free throw battle which they mostly concede again due to being small ball and having to hack people when they get close into the lane and they're winning turnovers and and efficiency but um yeah i mean chris paul is is playing an incredible series um shea gilgis alexander also having a great series and harden is not being particularly efficient right now he's still obviously incredible like 32 points a game um but he's shooting 44 33 83 which is good but it's not quite the levels we see from him during the regular season and eric gordon is also chucking up a lot of shots only shooting 38 percent from the field 21 percent from three that's hurting them a ton they've gotten guys to step up like daniel house has stepped up jeff green has stepped up probably more than anyone he, he's uh, stepped up to a suspicious amount. 
Yeah, I would not. I would not be surprised if he had like two points over the next two games. Right. Uh, but yeah, I think it's just they're. I mean, these teams aren't. You know, in terms of how they did during the regular season, these teams aren't that different. And the Westbrook loss does hurt them um, a, a ton, obviously. But you would think that Harden and and Eric Gorgon pick up their shooting a little bit. Mm-hmm. Not that Harden has historically picked up a shooting in the playoffs, but. I'm, this is a series that I'm like completely locked into. Like, I feel like I have to watch every minute of this. Yeah, for sure. I, I Houston had a great chance to to close out game four. Uh, they, they didn't play all that well uh, through the first three quarters, but had a really good run um, and, and had a chance to, to definitely slam the door on OKC in that game. And the fact that they weren't able to do that, I think caught a lot of people, including the Rockets, by surprise. You, you could see, I, I think, the way that James Harden reacted after that game, I, I think he thought they had that sewn up. Uh, I mean, they were leading 88 to 73 with five minutes left in the third quarter of that game. And went on a huge run, punctuated, of course, by Jeff Green, uh, a couple of buckets by him at the end of it. And, you know, even even later in the period, I mean, they're up they're up 13 points with, with two minutes left in the third quarter. And, you know, we talk about the Rockets being that team that, that has a lot of variance. And usually it's talked about in a positive context where, they can shoot their way back into any game, even if they're overmatched talent-wise. You know, they could just hit 21 three-pointers, and and all of a sudden it's it's going to be a close game no matter what. But I think that variance kind of worked against them this time, where they started chucking up a bunch of threes late in the third quarter. All of a sudden, you know, OKC goes on a run, and and it's a one-point game going into the fourth. And I think Houston was a little bit shell-shocked and and never fully recovered. And again, when you're a team that relies on one-on-one dribble 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 step back oh there's only five seconds left in the shot clock now and we're not going to get a good shot type of offense that really can hurt you down the stretch and and that's exactly what happened to them in game four yeah and they yeah they rely so much on just like as simple as it sounds just like making shots because they don't rebound right and a lot of times they're they they lose the free throw battle so they just rely again on and this has been beat to death but just the variance of it and so, again, if we see Eric Gordon start playing at a normal, like his, even at a passable level uh, in terms of like his efficiency, that could be enough just to push the heat or the the Rockets, excuse me, over the top here. Right. Um, yeah, because uh, I, I, he's or the Thunder's half court offense really hasn't been that good. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know, because, again, they could easily stay cold and the Thunder come away with the victory and this turns into another kind right. of playoff failure for Harden and the Rockets. And what's a little concerning is they hit 23 threes in that game and yeah, lost. Right, right. They hit 23 threes and they shot 45% overall. I mean, they, it wasn't a bad shooting game by any means. And you know, the, the turnover margin was, was equal 14 to 14. Um, so that wasn't a problem. I mean, you, you kind of said it with the free throws. I mean, if Harden's not getting to the line, no one else on the team is getting to the line. He only had five free throw attempts in this game. It was it was one where, you know, he settled for more threes maybe than you'd want, even though he was shooting it pretty well. Six of fifteen for him, you know, with some of the, with the degree of difficulty on a lot of those shots isn't bad. But ten free throw attempts as a team compared to twenty eight for for OKC. So even though you have this massive margin from three, it's kind of erased by, you know, when you're getting outscored by by twelve points at the free throw line. So. You know, Houston, I, I still would pick Houston to win the series. Um, I, I think they've been the better team for, if you go like quarter by quarter, they I feel like they've been the better team for like 80% of the quarters in the series, but some of their bad quarters have just come at really bad times. Uh, and they, they really need Russell Westbrook back. I mean, you mentioned Eric Gordon. He has a higher usage rate in this series than Jamal Murray has in the Denver series. Jamal Murray <laughs> has like, has three insane games and like two 50 point games. And Eric Gordon still has a higher usage rate. Like that's not what you want. And Eric Gordon has arguably been like the fourth best player on the team. Like <laughs> Jeff Green, by like in terms of we're talking game scores, the second best player on the Rockets right now. Right. Which probably doesn't bode well long term. Um, That's a wild stat. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, no problem. If you're if you're the Lakers, do you care who you play between Houston and OKC? Uh, I think so. I think I would. I think they would rather play OKC, right? I think so, too. Yeah, I think there's I, there's just there's just a little lower upside. OKC maybe has a slightly higher floor game to game, but I think the upside's quite a bit lower, especially if Russ is back by then, which you would assume he would be. Yeah, that's that's the perfect way to put it. 
Yeah. So, I mean, like we said, the Lakers are, are at this point for sure going to have the rest advantage, assuming they take care of business on Wednesday, which which they almost certainly will. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Philadelphia 76ers. You know, we, we, we previewed Toronto and Boston, but I, I don't want to re- recap this series just because there's not a lot to talk about. It was depressing from start to finish. Tobias Harris like almost died in game four and then inexplicably came back into the game right. after like falling literally headfirst and bleeding on the court. He's back on there in like 15 minutes. Like that was, that was just like kind of emblematic of how much of a a bleep show, I guess, for lack of a better term that that team was by the end of it. But where do the Sixers go from here? Um, I think it's more interesting rather than just like relitigating all the drama with, with Brett Brown, who of course has since been fired. Um, You know, they've outwardly said, we're not going to shop Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons. Of course, they're going to say that, you know, maybe, maybe they're fielding offers behind the scenes, I think the more feasible route, at least in the short term, if if they so choose to, which you think they almost have to, do they try to get off of either the the Al Horford or the Tobias Harris contract? Um, just because one, I mean, the mix didn't work this season, and and two, you know, global pandemic aside, it's just a lot of money to be paying to to two guys who haven't earned it quite yet, and and certainly Al Horford is the way he played this season, I think was really disappointing. It's pretty unrealistic to expect him to be better going forward. So, I mean, they're kind of in that mode now where do you seek out like a, a Charlotte and say like, can we, can we dump Al Horford for Nick Batum's expiring, which is up after, after this year? Um, I mean, those are the type of deals that you're looking at with the amount of money involved here. I think they should, they should probably look to do that. Um, you know, and, and I think Horford is the guy, cause I still think Tobias Harris you know, I, I don't think he's worth a max contract, but I think if he's your third or your fourth best player, you're in a pretty good position as a franchise. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that that contract is going to be impossible to get rid of. I Breaking up Simmons and Hor- uh, Embiid should be the final. That should be the last possible thing you do to, to try to shake things up because those guys are so talented individually. Um, no matter how uh, not ideal the fit is, you just you feel like you have to keep them together because you're never going to get perfect one for one value for either of those guys in a trade. And maybe there is a trade that's you get 75 cents on the dollar and the difference in on court uh, function makes up for it. But, yeah, you don't you don't really ever want to have to trade one of those guys because and, and it's also tough to know which one you prefer to trade. Right. I mean, Embiid has an injury history that you still, it's still in the back of your head all the time. You know, could this guy get hurt for a whole season again? And Ben Simmons can't shoot a jumper. And, um, you know, I think, I think personally I've, I've wavered back and forth. I think I'd almost be more confident building a team around Simmons, but mm-hmm. that's a, an insanely tough internal decision to make. And I'm sure plenty of people in the organization, plenty of decision makers have differing opinions about which one they want to build around. I don't think there's a right choice for that. I think they just have to choose one or the other. I actually, I, I shouldn't say that. I don't think they have to. I think they can still build a very successful team around them. And looking back to last year, if they beat Toronto, I mean, they could very well do the exact same thing that Toronto did to Milwaukee. And if Golden State has the same injuries, the Sixers are defending champions. And this isn't even a discussion, you know, but... I think if if it is going to be one or the other at some point, if you do want to go down that route, you you really have to say this is our guy and we're not just going to stockpile talent and try to make it work because that's basically what happened this time around. They said, oh, we can we can get all star X. We can get 20 point scorer X. Let's just do it just because and we'll make it work. And more often than not, unless you're the Golden State Warriors and you have just an overwhelming amount of talent, that plan doesn't really work. And when you have such, you have two very unique players, Simmons, you know, Simmons uniqueness is almost talked about as if it's a fault, which not having a jumper is, but he's so good in other areas um, that, that he's still, he's an all-star for a reason. And, and, and B, you could kind of say the same thing. You just, you just have to commit to one of them and then build the right team specifically around that guy. You know, the, like, think about the, the build for Houston around Harden, the build for Milwaukee around Giannis. Those teams are not perfect by any means, but all the guys, the Daniel Houses, the George Hills, the Wesley Matthews, like they're perfect fits for that star player. And that that to me is where where Philly has kind of aired these last few years is they prioritize talent over fit to a degree that has just been completely untenable. And part of the problem now is it's so much harder to to 
make that fit happen in year like five or six of that player being on the team rather than like right away. Um, you know, if you draft a guy, for example, it's way easier to just plug some guys in. Do they fit? Do they not? How does it work? Rather than working from a spot where you have to make these trades, theoretically, that uh, especially for like Horford or Harris, that will probably bring you back assets that you didn't really you didn't really get to choose. And how much can you really do in free agency? You're pretty limited because you're still good enough and you're not going to get a great, uh, great picks in the draft. So you can try to build around one of these guys, but it's not going to be as you're not going to be able to do it as well as you could have had you started the process of building around one of these guys earlier. Right. Um, and so that that will be really tough for them. And they're going to have to do some the, at that point. It just comes down to how is the what kind of assets can the front office get and the scouting mm-hmm. department? Um, how well can they do scouting, you know, NBA talent and uh, draft talent? I will say it's it's all been doom and gloom around the Sixers the last couple of weeks, and and rightfully so to a degree. But considering all of the blunders that they've made from the, since the start of the process, you know, starting with the like Nerlens Noel pick and the Jalil Okafor pick over Porzingis, you know, like the obviously the Fultz trade was the biggest disaster of them all, like trading Jimmy Butler, signing Tobias Harris. Like you can list like seven horrible things that they've done, and like. I mean, if, if you were if you were like all 30 GM jobs are vacant, Philly's still like a top five or six job, right? I mean, you still have Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, Josh Richardson, Al Horford. Some of the contracts aren't great, but like the assemblage of talent is still incredible. Like it's not a complete disaster by any means. Like they, it, it was a, a short-term disappointment, but I mean, it's not like this team is all of a sudden the Detroit Pistons and they're set up to just be like in the lottery the next five years. Right, your floor is still incredibly high, and you yeah. have you have plenty of talent on the team, and two guys who, again, you can, there's, if you were a GM, you could theoretically flip for other people and and shake it up. So, um, I think the main thing is, you know, I mean, they they did what everybody assumed would would be coming and firing Brett Brown, and so it'll be interesting to see what kind of coach they get and how that person um, decides to, you know, decides to move forward with with Ben and Joel, assuming they're they're still together. Do you have a certain coach that's been rumored? Uh, you know, Ty Lue's name has been tossed around. I think Jason Kidd, do you hear? It's kind of the same names as always. Is, is there somebody that off the top of your head or some names you've heard that, that really makes sense? I don't know. Um, not off the top of my head. I, I don't know if the answer is an, a pure X's and O's coach or you have to treat this team like it is a title team that needs like the ego manager, which is like the Jason Kidd, like was like the yeah. Ty Lue pick mostly, right? Um, so that's, that's a tough, I think that's a tough hurdle because the X's and O's with Brett Brown were so bad, but our, our Ben and Joel again, respect are uh, just a pure X's and O's guys. We saw what happened to like David Blatt, for example, and that's happened before with like, I mean, Kenny Atkinson got fired even before he got a chance for Katie and, right. and Kyrie. So no, I, that's, yeah, that's, that's a great point. I, I think, I think they tried to do both. You know, they tried to d- draft and develop with a coach like Brett Brown and then also win at the same time. And you kind of have to choose one or the other. Some coaches can skirt that line, but you know, more often than not, it, it ends up being a, an Atkinson like situation where the guy who, who sees through the the tough years, isn't always the guy to, to kind of reap the rewards at the end. And, you know, I, I think they'll run it back with at least, you know, a new coach next year, whoever it ends up being for one more year, see how that goes um, and then reevaluate from there. But uh, it's going to be interesting, certainly, to see how that turns out. We are out of time for this week, Alex. We'll be back next week. Make sure to check out all of our content on rotowire.com. You can find more episodes of our podcast on the site. We'll be back next Tuesday. Headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. 
My Patriot Supply has helped over 3 million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.